Earlier this year, we asked you what you wish you'd learned in school but didn't. Well, this week, we're going back to class and diving into the topics you wanted for our latest series, In Case You Missed It. As part of our series, we'll talk about media literacy and finance and nutrition, but today we're getting into all that you didn't learn about civics. And remember, to join future conversations, have your questions answered on future topics, or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. did take civics in high school and have been uh, focusing on civics my entire life. My dad was a history buff and required us to focus on civics and understanding civic engagement. Without understanding civics in high school and really understanding the political process and knowing what's out there and what is the reality of policymaking and decisions and processes, I think it's really easy to get trapped in misinformation. And teaching our children about civics is critical. Civics has been out of the classroom for way too long. The deadly insurrection at the U.S. Capitol left many Americans deeply worried about the state of our democracy. It also left some wondering how well people even understand what a democracy is. Only half of Americans can name all three branches of government. That's according to a 2021 survey from the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. According to that same survey, nearly 20 percent of Americans don't know any of their First Amendment rights. It's no wonder that when we asked you what's missing in school curricula, one answer kept coming up. Civic education. After the break, we'll get into the state of civic education today. And later on, we get a mini civics lesson from a teacher here in D.C. and one of her students. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. Let's get into the state of civic education today. Joining us is Kay Kawashima Ginsberg. She's the new house director of Circle at Tufts University. That's the Center for Information and Research on Civic Learning and Engagement. Kay, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Nice to be back. Also joining us is Ryan New. He's the instructional lead for social studies at Jefferson County Public Schools in Kentucky. Ryan, it's great to have you with us. Great to be here. So let's start with some basics. Ryan, what do we mean when we say civic education? So civic education is uh, what we want citizens, and I I mean not in a legal sense, but we want citizens to be able to know and do in a democracy. That is is absolute bare basics. And so when we talk about civic education, some people say, well, isn't that social studies? How do the two differ? So social studies is uh, both on the National Council for the Social Studies and even what our state standards here in Kentucky talk about is that social studies isn't just history. It's not just economics. It's that we're using those disciplines as a as a way of understanding how to know more and do more in our democracy. Kay, when did civic education first gain traction in schools? You know, there's lots of different narratives about this. Some would say this is why we have public schools, is to educate American people to be prepared to participate and contribute to civic life and sustain and improve democracy. So that would be really in the 1800s. Um, But I think really civic education, when I 
go meet people in the community, hear more about that happening a lot in the 1960s and maybe 70s, and a lot less starting around 1990s. There is a surge of it again. Now, the 2019 fiscal budget for the Department of Education shows a pretty stark divide between the investment in civic education versus other subject areas like math and science. Uh, The federal government spent $4 million a year on civics compared to nearly $3 billion on STEM or science, technology, engineering and math. Kay, what's behind this lack of investment? You know, it's hard to say because it's so critical for folks in the civic education community. It's really, really hard to separate how people could be career and college ready without democracy readiness, because it's really about working with other people and understanding how the systems around them work, right? So if you're an engineer, you need to understand how the laws and regulations in your state and federally can work with what you're trying to do in building bridges, for example. So it's really important to have that comprehensive understanding. Um, And yet there has been much more emphasis on things like uh, mathematical skills and technology skills, because that's what's really new and innovative in people's views. So they feel like they need to invest in that without attention to thinking about how we become people that live in the community in the first place and contribute to democracy. Um, So there's been really pennies spent per pupil on civic education, as opposed to, you know, tens of dollars per student in STEM for the last couple of decades. Uh, Many people blame no child's left behind policy. Ryan, you oversee the implementation of state standards for your school district in Kentucky. What role does civic education play in the overall curriculum? You know, so again, you know, social studies is all about making better citizens, right? We have to figure out how to uh, and really any curriculum is about figuring out how do we reason together as a society. You know, uh, democracy is both a society and government is really a is, is, is really nothing more than a society and government of conversation. Right. So part of what we're doing here in Jefferson County with our curriculum is figuring out how to help transition students to become better thinkers, better writers, better speakers. But that's only half the game. The other half is making sure that they are able to take what they're learning and be able to turn that and transform that into taking informed action in their classrooms, schools, and community. Now, last week, the Kentucky State House passed a measure called SB 138. Um, If signed into law, it will dictate how teachers talk about race in U.S. history. And one of the ideas the bill pushes is that, quote, defining racial disparity solely on the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow is destructive to the unification of our nation, end quote. Uh, Ryan, how concerned are you about this bill and its possible impact on subjects like civic education? You know, let me just say that I really I really trust uh, our teachers. I really trust uh, in the process to be able to do the right thing, as always, for our students. Uh, it, it, you know, the bill has not become law yet, so typically we, we wait until it becomes that law. What I will say is that, you know, the way in which we think about civic education uh, is through inquiry-based learning. The idea that you would start with questions, you would look at multiple sources and perspectives, uh, and then ultimately you'd be able to communicate your conclusions. We want our students to be able to do that. We want to be able to see that same process being done in our in our House and our Senate uh, in Kentucky here. Uh, so we're not too worried, to be honest with you, with the implications of some of that that bill, because we think that once it starts to turn into curriculum, once you start to have these robust conversations in classrooms, uh, you know, th- this is where civics and, and history sort of come alive. Controversial as that may be as far as it being elevated in a classroom, uh, that's ultimately where uh, we want those conversations to be.
Kay, over the last year, we've seen a number of state bills like the one in Kentucky that aim to restrict what's taught in school. Give us a better sense of the patchwork of attitudes around civic education and related subjects nationwide. Yeah, in some ways, there's two different trends that are sort of in conflict with each other. So one, of course, is this uh, kind of the bill that we just talked about, where if implemented and if misunderstood by teachers or if teachers don't have enough support, like Mr. News providing to his teachers in his district, teachers could really feel like they have really limited range of things that they can talk about without fearing for their safety or without the fear of losing their jobs, right? And the part of the reason is because there are, of course, concerned parents who are not sure what's being taught at their school because we haven't gotten into a great habit of communicating between parents and schools and families. So they're now starting to be really concerned about what they're being taught. That's a reasonable thing to be worried about. But at the same time, teachers and parents Aren't, they have different expertise, right? Parents and families have the value set that they want to make sure that the children are retaining. And then teachers have commitments to teach comprehensive history or comprehensive civic education. And sometimes what teachers might want to do, which may be, for example, talking about slavery or talking about how racism plays a role in society today, um, may feel like that's a conflict to the family values. So that kind of bill where parents may be advocating for limits to what teachers can discuss at school is spreading across the country. At the same time, there's a strong trend, like Mr. New just talked about, in talking about rigorous civic education, but also in a way that serve our increasingly diverse student body in American public school. It's definitely majority-minority now, and it's only increasing um, with regards to racial mix of our public schools. And while we really worked hard to make sure civic education has high-quality teaching, research shows that it's not working for everyone. It's not working for marginalized and disadvantaged students. So now we're really thinking about how to use things like inquiry-based learning or experiential civic education to serve all students. That means we're seeing different students' narratives and identities and embrace them within the classroom and making sure they have a sense of belonging to the community and school so that they can actually fully engage in learning. These research come from neuroscience, not just education. Here's Stephen in Southern Illinois. I'm 75 years old and I had civics when I was in the eighth grade and it stuck with me really well. And I've noticed teaching students at the undergraduate and graduate level, very few of them understand the real workings of our government, either at the county, state or federal level. And I think they really should have a much stronger uh, grounding in how government works, the basic forms of government and how they work, how the rules writing process works, and how important it is in terms of understanding what policies actually end up being promulgated and being enforced. Ryan, can you can you give us an example of how civics is taught in your district? What would a lesson look like? A great question. Uh, so. As mentioned earlier, you know, a lot of our standards are based upon inquiry. Uh, the C3 framework, uh, the lead writer of which, uh, Kathy, Dr. Kathy Swan uh, here in Kentucky, uh, really sort of laid a, a great foundation for figuring out how to develop quality curriculum uh, and instruction, right? What Kay was talking earlier about being able to, uh, you know, lean into this inquiry-based understanding has enormous benefits for everybody. So for us, then, the uh, units, our lessons begin with a question. What kind of questions are worthy of our students' time? Our students then immediately engage in what that question means, 
where they have contact with that question, where they experience that question in their lives. Um, and immediately from the beginning, right, we start to have discussion. We then move into looking at different types of sources, primary, secondary, uh, historical, contemporary. We're looking at the lived experiences of people in the past and the present to make sense of it. Because after all, that's what social studies is, making sense of the social world. At the very end then, we're sort of all having this conversation and we're funneling towards individual students be able to make sense of all the conversations and the sources uh, to be able to answer that question at the end, whether it be a written claim or an explanation or a verbal claim or explanation. So that in a sort of a nutshell, right? Questions, the sources we look at, and the tasks that students engage in. We got this message from Annie in Arkansas who says, Civics is still being taught today at my son's middle school. He's learning important lessons like what kind of salaries pay for certain jobs and that taxes need to be paid to the government on your income. That's something kids need to know in order to be contributing members of our future society. I'm remembering back to my civics class, I think in the... I think it was in the ninth grade, we had to build a business with a team of people from the class. And listen, this was a very, very long time ago, so I can't <laughs> recall much of what we did. But Ryan, do you all do that sort of um, project-based work where you're you're actually trying to build something or, as Annie said, you know, teaching students about what types of salaries you can get for certain jobs? You know, for us, it all comes down to the kinds of questions that we want to be able to answer. Right. One of the biggest elements has been uh, that sometimes we as adults uh, have the have maybe the right answers, sometimes the wrong or sorry, the right questions are sometimes the wrong questions. Uh, but we don't make a lot of space for our student questions. Right. Um, so part of what we're really trying to do is, is figure out what questions are worthy of our time. Uh, that's the knowing piece. And, and what your listeners have really sort of put in is that civics has been seen as this knowing element. Right. But what you're getting into is what we want to be able to move into, which is the doing aspect of civic education, the taking informed action. That oftentimes when students start to have these experiences where they're, uh, let's say as, as simple, just as an example, we've had um, a teacher, Haley Cook, uh, here in our district. Uh, she just had her students go through building a survey, right? Uh, the ideas of what kind of you know, questions should they be asking uh, their family, their friends, uh, the community about government and the role of that government plays. These led to an incredible conversation um, where the students were then sort of what juxtaposed between what they were thinking about the world and now all this data about what their community now thinks about the world. Uh, that's just one small example of a taking from action. But yes, ultimately, we want folks to be able to do things. We want to have this to be uh, experiential. We want this to be transformational for students. So when they walk out of a, of, of, of a class that day, they can take their learning beyond the walls of the school. Kay, you've studied the impact of civic education on young people. How does it impact things like voter turnout or community activism? So its answer is it's supposed to yes. Um, whenever students remember, for example, receiving civics instruction, especially related to sort of pragmatic aspects of it, like how to register in a nonpartisan way, for example, students are about 40% more likely to vote as young adults. So that's simple. But I actually want to go back quickly to what Mr. New said about sort of what the knowing and doing aspect of that. We have to remember the students are operating in a more complicated world. The information is a lot more complicated. There's a lot of misinformation out there. And sort of the kind of political polarization of many communities really are confusing to students, right? So we have to remember that we are also not just teaching students what to know, but also how to cultivate knowledge and then sort through information, which is a lot more complicated than 
simply taking in content knowledge per se. So well, teachers the, have a lot to do. Well, the concept of a public forum as a place to come together and, and share ideas has changed dramatically, particularly mm-hmm. during the pandemic with the shift to remote gatherings. There's, of course, a trade-off here. You know, the move to online has meant better access for some and worse access for others. But, Kay, how do you think this has changed, what it means to be an active part of civic life? So what's really interesting and complicated about being part of civic life is that you can't always avoid conflicts and disagreement. It's inherent part of our constitutional democracy. It's always been part of that. It's true in local community and it's true in federal government. But when you're just interacting with people online, you often get to choose who you interact with. And if you don't like something that's happening in an online space, it's very easy to just turn off your screen and check out of that space, right? So when we came back to in-person schooling, I am hearing here and there from teachers that students are no longer used to actually working through challenges with other students or adapting to what other people are saying because students learned for the last two years or so to be kind of on their own. So they're having some other adjustment moments that's actually relevant to how we live together and make decisions together as citizens in a classroom. Kay, when it comes to increasing access to civic education, what would that look like for you ideally? Is it more electives, mandatory classes, a standardized civics test? Uh, Those are great, too. But I actually promote starting earlier. So you keep hearing this ninth grade, eighth grade is kind of the civics time for a lot of people. It's really not enough time. Um, to really start thinking about yourself as a democratic citizen. And that can absolutely start, including inquiry-based learning in kindergarten. And that's what I promote. And the reason I say that is because civics isn't a zero-sum game. You can teach civic concepts and how to be a good citizen while teaching how to read. It's really possible, and many teachers do that well. And there's a study that shows incorporating social studies in reading class actually increases reading score better than just doing reading over and over. So there's lots of research benefits to say that. And the reason I say that is because you can't really think about yourself as a mathematician or, you know, literary person without thinking about yourself as a community member. And so by integrating more civic concepts and practices and living civics, as Mr. New says, we can do so much more to prepare more young people better and more equitably so across our communities. That's Kay Kawashima Ginsberg. She's the Newhouse Director of Circle at Tufts University. That's the Center for Information and Research on Civic Learning and Engagement. Also with us, Ryan New. He's the Instructional Lead for Social Studies at Jefferson County Public Schools in Kentucky. Kay, Ryan, thanks for speaking with us. Joining us now is Karen Lee. She's a Social Studies teacher and Department Chair at Thurgood Marshall Academy. That's a public charter high school in D.C. Karen, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. And also joining us is one of Karen's students, Lakeisha Richardson. She's a senior at Thurgood Marshall Academy. Hi, Lakeisha. Hi. So I should note both you and Karen agreed to miss class in order to give us a lesson. So we appreciate your time. Lakeisha, how much did you know about participating in civic life, whether it's voting or activism, before learning about it in school? Not much. I didn't know nothing about voting activism, about how much we are fighting for voting rights. I just thought we had everybody was voting the way they were supposed to be, but it's mistaken. <laughs> now, Karen, you've been teaching in D.C. schools for the last 15 years. What are some of the biggest misconceptions or knowledge gaps you've seen from students about civic life? 
Yeah, I think a lot of young people come into my classroom thinking that their vote doesn't matter or that voting is the only way to be engaged in our community. And so we spend a lot of time talking about who votes and who doesn't at our local level to sort of start to understand the power of voting and how local decisions are made. And so I really work to sort of stop that misconception on day one and really at Um, spend time talking about how their vote does matter, and not only voting, but other ways to get involved. Karen, did you have a civics class when you were coming up? I did. I had eighth grade civics. So much like everybody else hit right at that middle school level, um, that definitely shaped what I was paying attention to throughout high school. So let's say someone is really passionate about a particular issue, let's say gun safety, but they don't know what to do about it. If you're teaching a class, Karen, where would you say they should start? Yeah, I would encourage uh, people to start looking at where they want to see the change happen. So starting with sort of an analysis of power. Do you want to see change happen at the national level or do you want to see change happen at the local level? And then to tease out who is in charge of those decisions. So if you're looking for legislation to get passed to address an issue, then you're going to look at your legislative body, either locally or nationally. Um, and if you're, but if you're looking for something community specific, you might go to community leaders who are active or your more local representatives uh, to pitch your idea to them. And I would say um, that people are experts in their lived experience. And so the people who are representing us need to hear that lived experience. And that is just as meaningful as data points or arguments. Um, But how we are living together is really part of that legislative process as well. So let's stick with gun safety for a minute. What's the best way to have a conversation with your community about it and identify what people's needs are? Yeah, so I spend a lot of time supporting uh, leaders from my school and a student activist group called Pathways to Power on this very issue. And we talk about the root causes to it. So we've got sort of advocacy efforts about uh, gun violence prevention and sort of the uh, general sense, but also we look at the access points of the root causes. And so we spend time with our local leaders, talking to them, writing letters, Uh, creating sort of spaces and community meetings for young people to talk about the need for increased mental health supports or how uh, not having affordable housing impacts security, not having jobs impacts the ability to provide for family and how all of those play into gun violence. And so attacking those root causes and analyzing what's behind the problem helps to know what you are calling action to for our school leaders. Lakeisha, how do you think having civics education has changed the way you think about your role in society? doing like the MIFA challenge or do, and doing seeing direction, I have l- learned a lot about civic engagement that even now I have already registered to vote. And over the summer, I'm planning on working as a poll worker. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Box Pop app and leave us a voicemail.
Today, we're talking about civic education. Now, let's get back to our conversation about civic education. It's part of our series called In Case You Missed It, about the subjects you wish you'd taken in school. We're bringing you a mini civics lesson, and here to help us out are Karen Lee, a social studies teacher and department chair at Thurgood Marshall Academy here in D.C., and one of Karen's students, senior Lakeisha Richardson. We got this email from Kathy who says, what's missing in this conversation is that students need a foundation in the basic facts of how our government works. Projects, activism, collaboration, all are great, but to just throw students into into that risks producing a nation of citizens who don't know the basics. 50% of Americans can't name the three branches of U.S. government. That's deeply troubling. Karen, where do you start with your lessons? Do you start with those basics about how our government works? Absolutely. I think as students are coming in, uh, we are able to look at a lot of different things, including sort of naming the three branches, naming the powers. We spend a lot of time in the Constitution looking at what the text of the Constitution says and then translating it to what is happening in the world around us. So making sure that we are able to make sense of the headlines, that we are able to name whose job it is to be addressing uh, certain aspects. And we are able to sort of have those bigger conversations um, around how the government is functioning because we have an understanding of what the constitution tells us they should be doing. Um, And so being able to really have some rich critical conversations Um, on those foundations is absolutely key to then being understanding of how you can go and make change. Now, Lakeisha, you've taken what you've learned in Karen's class and brought it to your community. I understand you're working to improve access to menstrual supplies. What first drew you to this issue? Um, We had to do a menstrual challenge um, in my U.S. government class. And will you say that again? Um, Is it a menstrual challenge? Yes, a menstrual challenge. It's an organization that works to develop youth to be empowered, informed, and and active citizens. They do this um, through classrooms, the classroom lessons, and opportunities to advocate to community leaders for change. Okay, and so you started to look at this issue of access to menstrual supplies during that project. What happened to, happened from there? My class voted for me to go to the MIFA finalists, where there I gave my speech about the taboo of menstruation, and my call to action to have free menstrual products in all that feminine and neutral gender bathrooms. And the school executive director, Mr. Whedon, was there. And he hoped um, to make my action come true, to come to reality. What kinds of conversations did you have with other students and members of your community to better understand the issue? Um, because I was brought up to have a positive idea about menstruation in our periods. So I had to really go and talk to a lot of my friends and I had to do a lot of research online about how people have experienced name calling, um, not being able to have the products that needed for when they on an menstrual cycle, which in me, I just realized this was an issue that I needed to fix or help. So you gave this speech, um, your principal heard, <laughs> heard what you had to say. What happened from there? I had like a meeting with Mr. Whedon about talking about menstruation products, about being put into our bathrooms. And has and it now, has it happened yet? Yes. Now we have menstruation products, free menstruation products in all our gender neutral and female bathrooms. Karen, so so Lakeisha saw some success with with her activism there. Let's say you've gathered information about an issue in your community and you want to get a lawmaker or office holder involved, like the principal got involved with Lakeisha's project, how would you do that? 
Yeah, I think the big push is that you, that the folks who are representing you work for you. And so asking for a meeting can be really intimidating and often not responded to right away. Um, but especially at the local level, keep pushing that there is, um, that it's their job to listen to you and that our taxes pay their salary. And so they should be accountable to hearing to the things that we're interested in. And then at the national level, you know, writing letters, showing up in hearings, um, being able to be in community spaces and joining with other community partners to amplify the voice and the call to action that you're looking for uh, often can sort of push into conversations in a way that can make meaningful change. Lakeisha, did your success in, in providing better access to menstrual supplies, did it does it make you think about what you want to do next and what other issues you might want to push for? Um, yes. Um, because of this experience, it has awoken my eyes to the injustice and social issues that we're facing. That now I'm just, any social issue that I feel like needs to be talked about, I talk about it, I learn, do my research about it, and I find call to actions. Now, Karen, we heard Lakeisha say earlier that um, she's registered to vote, and voting is one of the major ways people engage in civic life. Let's say a young person or, or anyone who's never voted before wants to register. What are some basic steps to make that happen? Yeah, it's actually really uh, easy in most places. And so I would direct, <coughs> excuse me, I would direct students to either their specific state board of election webpage or to organizations like Mikva Challenge that Lakeisha mentioned or When We All Vote um, that on their landing page have spaces to be able to explore how to register to vote in each of the states um, and in DC. And so really it's about finding out that form or whether it can be done online or what has to happen. So for us, we make a big deal of it in our class um, and I print out the form and we all fill it out and then we mail it in together. And as voter registration cards come in, uh, we celebrate them and celebrate sort of that move that happens when you turn 18. And I would also encourage uh, young people to look and see around uh, what it requires to vote on election day and whether or not they need to bring an ID, where their polling place is. So we make a plan to vote before they even leave class, but that doesn't have to be classroom specific. That can be something that they explore on their own. Now, sometimes when you are voting for the first time and you see the long list of candidates and there may be referendum on that ballot, what do you say to your students about the best way to stay educated about what you're actually voting for? Absolutely. So the Board of Election webpage uh, is a source that is really rich in information. So often they have sample ballots or sample ballots get mailed out to your address when you're a registered voter. So spending time with that ballot before you go to the um, go to vote at your polling place helps you to know what's coming up. Um, and so we also talk in class about the different kinds of things that will show up on a ballot and will be able to be uh, voted on and what that means. Uh, since DC is not a state yet, there's some complications in DC. So we are often looking at other states as models so that students can understand when they're going off to college in other states, what it is, uh, what that looks like for them and how they can change the registration or vote um, versus absentee ballot and sort of all the things that get, that get into that so that they're comfortable on election day. Lakeisha, I'm curious how civic education has led to maybe some other conversations with friends or family members as, as you've gotten more engaged in the voting process and the way our government works. 
and and also in issues that are important to you? Mm-hmm. Well, for me, because of civil education and everything, um, when I do discuss topics with my family and my friends, voting is something that I'm really big about. I feel like because a lot of my families are old enough to vote, I feel like it's something big they should do as an American citizen. So with my friends, when they do get old enough, I do tell them to go and vote because it's something we all should do. Karen, what do you think gets lost or missed if this type of education is not included in the curriculum? Yeah, I think if we don't spend time talking about the power structures and the decision makers who impact our daily life, then we often feel helpless to make change. But sort of unpacking that structure and being able to say, no, this group of people is in charge of this and this group of people is in charge of that enables us to feel like we are a part of a larger community and that our voice matters. And sometimes that just starts with a small win at school, like Lakeisha described, um, but then that can extend into the community. I have no doubt that Lakeisha is going to be a lifelong voter and that she's going to bring all of the people in her world to the polls with her. And so that one small success that happened in our specific school is going to lead to the engagement Uh, that we want to see to make our communities, both locally and nationally, a better community. That's Karen Lee. She's a social studies teacher and department chair at Thurgood Marshall Academy. That's a public charter high school here in D.C. Karen, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you so much. Also with us was one of Karen's students, Lakeisha Richardson. She's a senior at Thurgood Marshall Academy. Lakeisha, it was great to have you on. Thanks. Thank you. Today's producer was Katherine Fink. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A.